0: Good evening. My name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here at Regen and at Grace. And if you are tuning in from that part of our faith family, it's uh, good to see you. I'm glad to be with you tonight. Uh, If you happen to be tuning in and you're not part of our spiritual family, I'm just honored that you'd give us your time tonight as we uh, mark this Good Friday. Um, Just as we start tonight, I want to say thanks to the team of people that have been making these live streams happen. Since we started on the 15th of March, we thought we were just doing this for a little while, and now that little while becomes longer and longer. So thanks to Art and Pam, and thanks to Joey and Julia, thanks to Holden, um, thanks to uh, my wife, Steph, who's actually at home with Jack right now while he's asleep. Uh, We are all figuring this out. Uh, None of us has degrees in broadcast journalism, and so we're kind of building the plane while we fly it. But that's kind of what we're all doing in this season in every corner of our life anyway. In this season of our life, we're all trying to figure something out. And so there is some goodness to be rooted uh, in the story of Jesus. Um, And that's why tonight um, I was tempted to kind of lead us in a direction of reflecting on the cross and on the death of Jesus In light of COVID-19 and the coronavirus, but I felt like God wants to give us a gift tonight where we don't think about that at the forefront of our minds, but instead are drawn into a different part of Scripture. And so if you have a Bible at home, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10. That's a New Testament book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 10. Sometimes we have this little turn of a phrase, this idea that opposites attract, And as we turn to the pages of Scripture, we find that there are two opposites. Uh, We find that there is the sinfulness of humanity and the holiness of God. The reality is that these are not opposites that attract. They are opposites that repel, just like uh, when you put two magnets together Uh, And and so what we find as we enter the story that Jesus calls us to dwell in and live out, uh, we find two truths. We find the truth that God is holy, and we find the truth that people are not. Uh, In Genesis chapter 6, which is just a few pages into the very beginning of the Bible, we read uh, this. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made them on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The apostle Paul, centuries later in the New Testament book of Romans, writes this, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise, no one is seeking God, all have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. lies, Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. The sinfulness of humankind is well documented by sources outside of Scripture. Tonight, I have little need to tell you of the brokenness of the human condition, of the quiet rebellion in the human heart, or the silent evil that lurks in the souls of even the most upright among us. The sinfulness of humanity, according to one theologian, is the longest running of human emergencies, and that emergency takes place against the backdrop of the holiness of God. God's holiness refers not only to his moral purity, but his total otherness, his singular otherness. God is holy in his person, where he resides, is holy. The objects that are near God or that he identifies as special are holy too. And the prophet Isaiah, caught up in a vision of God, is immediately confronted by God's holiness. Uh, As he's caught up in this vision, he, in this vision, enters the throne room of heaven, where he sees heavenly beings called seraphim uh, standing above God's throne, but they are covering their faces, and they're Covering their feet while they cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy. To say anything three times in Scripture is a note of perfection. God is perfectly holy. And when he encounters God's holiness, Isaiah simply says, Woe is me. He says, I am undone. A.W. Tozer says that Isaiah's pain-filled cry expresses the feeling of every man and every woman who has discovered under himself, who has discovered himself, excuse me, under his disguises and has been confronted with an inward sight of the holy whiteness that is God. Such an experience, he says, cannot but be emotionally violent. He goes on to say this, until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us, as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. Neither the writer or the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. Confronted by God's holiness and our sinfulness, we are left with a mystery, How is it that a holy God can befriend sinful people? God's holiness means that sin can be nowhere near him. God responds to sin like our bodies respond to a food that we are allergic to, uh, urgently and violently seeking to expel it. How can a holy God befriend sinful people? This is the question before us, and it turns out that Good Friday is how we find our way to an answer to that question. When we gather in the shadow of the cross on Good Friday, when we gather in the place of Jesus's bloody and brutal death, a new channel is cut into our minds whereby we begin to grasp not only the depth of our sin, but the greatness of God's holiness and how God seeks to meet us through his holiness even in our sin. And in that moment, in the midst of our sinfulness, even as we cry out, woe is me, what we come to understand is the intense brightness of God's holiness where we find life and life everlasting this is why we call this Friday, of all Fridays, Good Friday. What a strange name for this day that we mark the death of the Messiah, of the spotless and sinless Son of God. But it is a Good Friday because it helps us answer our question of how a, of a, how a holy God can be, befriend a sinful people. And so to answer that question, we're going to look tonight at Hebrews chapter 10 starting in, in verse 11. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 22. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, who is Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. Verse 14, for by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And Just hang on to that because we're going to nerd out about the grammar on that. Uh, Verse 15 says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies this is so, for he says, this is a quote from the Old Testament, This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, verse 17, another quote from the Old Testament, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, Jewish men and women who have discovered Jesus to be the fulfillment of and end of their faith and their hoping. And yet these, these men and women, these Jewish Christians, find themselves tempted to return to their old way of believing. And so Hebrews is an, explana- is an exploration and an explanation of how Jesus fulfills the faith of Israel, how he fulfills the promises of the old covenant, which you and I call the Old Testament This New Testament, this New Covenant, it it explores how the law and prophets were a shadow and how Jesus is the substance. And this is all summed up in chapter 10, verse 11. It says, under the Old Covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. In the Old Covenant, In the days of Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David, and by the way, we're kind of doing a deep dive into a part of the Bible tonight, and if you aren't familiar with the Bible, welcome to the club. It's a mysterious book uh, that we're always seeking to explore more, but in the Old Covenant, in the the days of the Old Testament, and the days of Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David, our question, how can a holy God befriend sinful people? Our question was answered by animal sacrifices, that were made first in the tabernacle and then later in the Jerusalem temple. And a priest, and a priest, by the way, is someone who represents God to the people and represents people to God. A priest would stand before the altar. He would slit the throats of these animals. They would put the meat on the altar. And that sacrifice on the altar or in the temple or tabernacle, the sacrifice propitiated or turned away the wrath of God towards sin, so that sinful people could dwell in God's presence. The Old Testament sacrifices of animals, of, of lambs and bulls and doves, uh, which were made on an altar, performed by a priest, they turned away God's wrath. But the problem was they had to be made again and again and again and again and again. And so Jesus comes in, in verses 12 through 14, and changes that. It says, but our high priest Jesus offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins good for all time then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet for by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy Jesus offers himself, he enters into the story as both high priest and sacrifice. As great high priest and as the greatest of sacrifices, remember Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As the great high priest and the greatest of sacrifices, Jesus offers the ultimate and final sacrifice himself. And the writer of Hebrews says this puts an end to the sacrificial system that required sacrifices to be made over and over and over again. Instead, Jesus makes a sacrifice that is good once for all, good for all time. The sacrifice earns Jesus a place of honor at God's right hand, and it says that it is that sacrifice is effective to make perfect those who are being made holy. That is, you and I and everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Don't miss this. Jesus forgives sin through one single sacrifice that is good for all time. When Jesus died on Good Friday and paid the penalty for sin, when Jesus died that Good Friday, he paid and covered and forgave the sin of your past and your present and your future. No more sacrifices in the temple every day. No, this temple forgive this, this sacrifice forgives sin completely and utterly and totally. And this is what the author explores in verses fifteen through eighteen. God says, When sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. Because there are there's no more need for sacrifice, clearly sin has been forgiven. God says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. That's a promise God makes over and over again in the Bible. Is that forgiveness of sins for God is remembering our sin no more. The only person in the universe who knows everything about everything remembers something no more. It turns out that this once-for-all sacrifice has initiated a new arrangement, a new covenant which is explored in verses 19 through 22. In verse 19, the author says, So, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. and our bodies have been washed with pure water. There's so much imagery that's rich in Old Testament here. When you would go to make a sacrifice, before you did, your hands were washed in clean water, and the priest would sprinkle the blood from the animal that you had just sacrificed on you and your family. Only it is Jesus who has washed us, washed our bodies to make us clean, and it is Jesus' blood that has been sprinkled on us to make us clean. See, in the Old Covenant, The most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was a space at the very center of the temple. And it was the place where God's presence dwelt. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But yet somehow God's presence was focused and settled there in a unique way. And this place was separated from the rest of the temple by heavy curtains And only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. But now, through this good for all time, once for all sacrifice, Jesus, our great high priest, has entered the most holy place, has entered the Holy of Holies, and and the text says that Jesus has made a new and life-giving way through the curtain. Do you know why it says life-giving? Because if the high priest had sin in his life that had not been atoned for, the minute he passed through those curtains, he would be struck dead. They would tie a rope around his ankle with a little bell, and if they stopped hearing the bell move, they knew to fish him out and then send somebody else in. But Jesus has opened a new and life-giving way into the very presence of God. He's able to invite us in there because he's a high priest who rules over God's house. And you know what it is. You go to somebody else's house to play Monopoly. They have house, never play Monopoly. It's a bad game. But you go play, they have house rules. Jesus sets the rules for his house. And he says that because our guilty consciences, and boy, were they guilty, have been sprinkled clean by his sacrifice, we can go stomping right into the most holy place, this place that no one else trod. We, sinful people as we are, can go right into the holy presence of God confidently with hearts sincerely trusting him. This, this, right here, the shed blood of Jesus on the altar of the cross This is where we find the answer to our question tonight. This is how a holy God can befriend a sinful people. This is how a holy God can rescue me from my failure. This is how he can invite me not only to call him friend, but to call him father. This cross, this place of brutal death, this Good Friday is the place where we life. And this is what makes Good Friday good. What makes Good Friday good is that it is here that we find a holy God that befriends us through the once-for-all sacrifice of His Son that invites us right into His presence. This is what makes Good Friday so good that we can venture in to the most holy place, the most holy place with confidence and trust because we have confidence and trust in our great high priest, in, in, in Jesus. And that's what makes Good Friday good. But let me tell you what makes Good Friday even better. Look at, again at, at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. This is the part where we're going to nerd out on the grammar. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. There is a single action and a process named here. He has made perfect those who are being made holy. It says that through faith in Jesus and because of his once for all sacrifice, I have once and for all been made perfect in God's eyes, not by my achievements or my faithfulness or the good things I have done or the bad things I have not done, But because of Jesus' once for all sacrifice, in God's eyes, I have been made perfect. The Reformers called this the imputed righteousness of Jesus. That when God looks at me in my sin, because of my faith in Christ, he actually sees Jesus. I am covered with Jesus' robe of righteousness. I am made perfect. And yet, lest I rest on Christ's righteousness and somehow in the process forget that it's his and not my own. Lest I decide that since I have been once for all made perfect and just coast on into heaven, lest I become what some would call the frozen chosen, hanging out on this earth as if my life doesn't matter and if it's just a waiting room for glory. The text also says that he has made perfect once for all time those who are being made holy. How can there be a single action and a process occurring at the same time. I don't know how can a sinful god how can a sinful people be befriended by a holy god. If you want easy answers, Christianity is not the way for you because it is an embrace of tension and mystery. But here's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Good Friday, the death of Jesus accomplishes something and begins a lifelong process in which we get to participate. It accomplishes something that sets us free, and now we run in that freedom. There's a verse on my son's wall. It's from Psalm 119, and it says, "I will run in the path of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. For you have set my heart free. I have been set free in one punctiliar action, but now I am free to run." in the path of his commandments to participate in that being made holy. Good Friday, the death of Jesus, initiates a lifelong process that makes us more like Jesus until we see him face to face when he returns. It is something that I live not just today for a half hour while I reflect on the death of Jesus. It is something that shapes my whole life. My life becomes cross-shaped because of Good Friday. I am being made holy. Something is happening in me which is why the author of Hebrews adds this in verse 23. All of these things that are true, this once for all sacrifice, this once moment, but then he says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate, other translations say stir up, stir up one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together. Isn't that a funny verse to read right now? Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do. See, now what you're doing is you're looking at who's viewing this right now and seeing who's not here and judging them. Good job. That's exactly what the Bible's telling you to do. Okay. Joey and Julie are laughing so as to indicate that's a joke. Okay. Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Listen, this is what it means to be made holy, is to further root ourselves in this confession, in this hope that we affirm, trusting God to keep his promise. See, here's the deal. Good Friday, this once-for-all sacrifice isn't the end of the story, and quite frankly, it isn't the beginning. That's what Easter Sunday is all about, but this, this Good Friday, this is the first rumblings of a stone rolling away. This is the first grumblings of a salvation that is to come. And what makes Good Friday good is not only that we have been befriended in our sinfulness by a holy God, what makes Good Friday truly good is the participation in the cross-shaped life of Jesus today and every day through forever. Jesus is inviting you into that life tonight. Jesus wants to invite you into that life tonight, into his life. He wants to make you perfect so he can make you holy. He wants you to uh, to discover tonight the freedom, the freedom that comes from this once-for-all sacrifice so that you could run in the path of his commandments because he set your heart free. I just want to pray for you, and then we'll close our time. God, you through your great mercy, have made us alive together with Christ, but you did that by uniting us to him in his death. Thank you, Jesus, that your death is a once-for-all sacrifice that covers the sin of my past and my present and my future. Thank you, Jesus, that I don't need to earn your affection once I've received it, but that I walk in it all the days of my life. And so I pray for my friends that are listening tonight that they would inhabit the cross-shaped life of Jesus today and every day. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.